0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is Andrea Wolfe, whose new book is Magnificent Rebels, The First Romantics and the Invention of the Self. But if you're thinking when you hear the word romantic, Coleridge, Keats, Wordsworth, Shelley, it's not those romantics. These are the OG romantics, the German romantics, and they all gathered in a little town in Germany, and Andrea tells their story in this book. Andrea, welcome. Is Romanticism a German invention?
1: Well, you're starting off with the hardest question straight away. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. It's not a German invention, but I would say that they were really so the my guys, so which I called the Jena set because they came together at the same time at the same place at the end of the 18th century. Are really the first to use the term "romantic" in its new literary and philosophical meaning. So before then, the word "romantic" was used, but it came from the French word "novel," "roman." So it was it only meant like like a novel. So they're the first to use it as we understand it today. So they they are the ones who actually launch romanticism onto an international stage. So not just by giving it its name and its purpose, but also by providing its intellectual framework. So in that sense, you could probably say they invented maybe what they do do is they influence a great number of people across the world so from this tiny little town in germany there's a, this amazing ripple effect across the world and people like coleridge for example or the american transcendentalists are deeply deeply influenced by them and maybe we can talk about that after i introduce them a little bit but so they they're incredibly important for the english romantics for example
0: yeah why is it, how is it that they come together in this little town of Jena? It becomes... I mean, you you say, I think, in your introduction, you know, there are these moments in history when you get people like the Bloomsbury set, like the English romantics who, you know, as I said, of the Bloomsbury set, you know, they they lived in squares and they loved in triangles. You've definitely got a flavour of that here. But this is the sort of, almost, as you say, it's more influential than any of these previous or competitive, if you like, little literary cliques. I mean it was a really productive clique wasn't it?
1: Yes so so maybe let me start with who's actually there and then we talk about why in Jena. So I mean I basically stumbled into the story when I was doing the research for my previous book about Alexander von Humboldt because Humboldt spent many many months in Jena which is a small university town about 150 miles southwest of Berlin and as I was walking through the streets of Jena I saw all these Name plaques on the houses, which listed all the people who had lived there and I mean I couldn't believe it because it was the it was like the who is who of German poets and thinkers so there was there was the famous playwright Friedrich Schiller, for example, who had become you know the celebrated playwright of the robbers there was Germany's most celebrated poet Goethe, who didn't live in Jena, but he spent many, many months each year in Jena, so he lived in the nearby weimar there were The philosopher Johann Gottlieb Fichte, who put the self at center stage of his philosophy. There was the philosopher Schelling, who redefined our relationship with nature. There was Hegel, who would become one of the most important philosophers in the Western world.
0: Yes, we get baby Hegel here, don't we?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he he was the unknown one back then. There were the Schlegel brothers, which were these very contentious, complicated brothers who were literary critics and translators. And were, then there's a bunch of kind of extraordinary women, and maybe we can talk a bit more about them in detail later. But And a lot of these names might not be that familiar to an English-speaking audience, but I promise you, in Germany, we all, I mean, all of us know these names. I mean, they're like the superstars. So they all came together in this tiny little place, which... Back then, at the end of the 18th century, had about four and a half thousand people. So, why in Jena? So I wanted to know why on earth are they all coming together there? And I found this story of I mean radical ideas, ideas about the creative power of the self, about the unity between us and nature, about the true meaning of freedom, but also a great story with scandals and open marriages and love affairs and battles with the authority. So the question is, why Jena? And I think we have to actually start, why Germany? That's the first step, because Germany at the end of the 18th century was not a unified nation. It was a patchwork of 1500 states ranging from tiny principalities to powerful states such as Austria and Prussia. And Jena was in the small duchy of saxe Weimar, which is pretty much in the center of this, which was then called the Holy Roman Empire. Now one advantage of this fragmentation was that censorship was pretty difficult to enforce in this kind of Holy Roman Empire v- very very different to centrally ruled states such as France or England also France England Spain had powerful monarchies with a global reach through their colonies the US had the unexplored west but Germans Germany was inward looking and very very splintered so the German imagination traveled along words and books. So literacy rates sought So Prussia and Saxony were actually leading the world at the end of the 18th century. So there were, almost every German town had a, a lending library, had reading societies, and everybody was reading. So ideas and arguments traveled easily in Germany. So that's, I think that that's the kind of framework of this. And then you have Jena which is this tiny university town and it's I mean so small that it took less than 10 minutes to cross and it had more liberally open-minded thinkers poets and philosophers than any other German state city and the other and the reason for that was as Friedrich Schiller said was the relative freedom of thinking you had there so one one reason was there was an enlightened ruler who allowed you know a certain frankness and openness. But the other reason was the university, or to be precise, the strange governance of the university, because through complicated inheritance law, the university which had once been ruled by Saxony was now, by the end of the 18th century, ruled by four different Saxon dukes, with no one really in charge. So basically, it allowed the professors there to teach whatever they wanted. There There was very little censorship, so it attracted these people who had been in trouble with the authorities in their own home states, such as Schiller, for example, who had been imprisoned for writing the revolutionary play The Robbers. And the more of those people ended up there, the more they attracted them. So it became this very transient place where people came and left and leaving behind kind of broken hearts and children born out of wedlock. There were a staggering of I think a quarter of all children born in Jena at that time were born out of wedlock. So it was an extraordinary place at that time. So it attracted all these visionary thinkers. So they all ended up there, and, and half of them lived together. So it's also the first commune in Germany, I think. And and the sort of initial
0: linchpin that comes in, as you describe it, is this extraordinary and lifelong friendship between Goethe and Schiller, And, you know, Goethe's sort of... Even though the, the story you tell is one of a, you know, a lot of very young people who are very radical and very keen to kind of overthrow the established order, Goethe, who is, you know, the kind of almost pillar of the establishment, sort of comes to preside over this, doesn't he? How is that? How come he kind of gets a pass, as it were?
1: <laughs> well, Goethe is a fascinating figure. So he rose to international fame with his novel, The Sorrow of the Young. Werther, which he wrote in the 1770s. And it was, I mean, he became a literary superstar, and there was a, this Werther fever everywhere. There is, you know, it's this novel about a lovelorn lover who commits suicide, and there's a wave of suicide after that. So Lord Byron jokes at some stage later on to Goethe that, that Werther killed more people than young men than Napoleon, actually. So, So you have Goethe as this young, dashing poet. and then, But by the time the Jena set kind of arrives in the mid-1790s, he's in his mid-40s, and he has become very much part of the establishment, the administration of the, of the Duchy of Saxe-Weimar. So he's the, the Duke's Privy Councillor, he's in charge of the Duchy's mines, he's in charge of the theatre, but he's also lost his creativity. So for years he hadn't produced anything remarkable. And then he meets Schiller in 1794. And Schiller lived in Jena for a while. He had flat there. He worked at the university. He also had problems with his creativity. So he hadn't produced any poems for a long time or plays. He was concentrating on philosophy and aesthetics and history. He was perpetually ill his illnesses really danced over him like a constant reminder of you know his limited time on earth so he pushed his frail body the whole time so Goethe and Schiller were very very different Goethe was vigorous he always wanted to go outdoors he wanted to skate Schiller kind of you know stayed inside he needed to have some rotten apples in his desk so he he could only work you know creatively while smelling this kind of slightly fermented smell. So they came together very different and they began to challenge each other, to edit each other and enter both of them a kind of very productive phase of their life. And that's also the time when the younger generation arrives, the Ina said. and I mean, they put Goethe on a pedestal. He becomes like their demigod. He, at the same time, because he's really run out of his creative juices, he just sucks up their ideas and their energy, and so it's this it's this kind of symbiotic kind of relationship where he becomes this almost stern but benevolent godfather of this kind of wild and younger group, so because they fight and they have problems, and he always tries to mediate between them and and in turn, they put him on this pedestal and and they later say which is not true, but they later say that they basically made him famous again. So there's a certain arrogance also there because they're literary critics and they they basically attack the literary establishment relentlessly, except of Goethe.
0: Yes, Friedrich Schlegel comes
1: across. as sort
0: of the Randall Jarrell of the group, doesn't he? He's this kind of gadfly biting everybody. <laughs> he's fabulous. <laughs>
1: he's, this, he's this young literary critic. He says he is a dictator critic with a pen as sharp as the French guillotine. And his whole purpose is to live free and to attack the literary establishment. But he's a brilliant mind. I mean, he's, I would argue, he's the most important kind of theoretical thinker of this first generation of the Romantics. And he is, I mean, he is, he really, really, really writes about the equality between men and women. So he, he believes in strong women. He writes this erotic, novel, which is very much based on his own life about him and his lover, Dorothea, who's this divorced writer. And he, I mean, he literally invites the readers into his bedroom, watching him and Dorothea make love. And not only that, they also swap roles. So like, as they're having sex, the female protagonist, so Dorothea becomes the dominant one. But this is for him, it's a celebration of the equality between men and women also. So he's, a, he's an extraordinary character. He is. They all are, I think. I mean,
0: But one of the ex- sort of extraordinary things in that, I mean, just to tell him, for instance, is he's fallen out with Sheila by giving a vile review to Sheila's literary magazine <laughs> before he even turns up in Jena. And one of the grounds for attack on this literary magazine is that it contains too many translations. And the translations that he's complaining about are written by his own brother and his sister-in-law, who are, by this stage, you know, much calmer people who are kind of in with Sheila, all part of the kind of Yena set. And he kind of arrives and starts, you know, detonating bombs underneath all these established relationships.
1: Yeah, he's... I mean, he's very much... He judges very quickly and imprudently, yeah. let's say it. Uh, and he upsets a lot of people. And... But... It's because he so much believes that he's speaking the truth that he, for example, you know, as you said, completely ignores that his review is going to damage his brother massively. I mean, so much so that, I mean, Schiller is so annoyed with him that he tells his brother, You can't work for me anymore for my magazine. So, yes, so there, that Friedrich Schlegel never really thinks about the consequences of his behaviour, which I think makes him also a very interesting character because he really doesn't care, but he hurts a lot of people on the way.
0: And this brother, he's no small beer himself. I mean August Wilhelm Stegel, with his wife Caroline, who's one of the most fascinating characters in your your story, and we'll we'll talk about her. The two of them, if I'm reading your account of it right, essentially kind of brought Shakespeare to the popularity in Germany he now enjoys, that their translations of Shakespeare were so revolutionary that they're still the ones that are used.
1: Yes. So August Wilhelm Schlegel is Friedrich Schlegel's older brother. He's much calmer. He's always kind of impeccably dressed and perfectly groomed, a bit pedantic maybe, but he was a brilliant linguist. So he and his wife, Caroline, about, we're going to talk more about her later, they begin the first... German verse translation of Shakespeare so there had been prose translation but no verse translation and they together translate 16 Shakespeare plays and to this day it's the it's the standard edition it made Shakespeare almost like a national German poet They're, to this day there are more Shakespeare performances in Germany than in England. <laughs> which is quite extraordinary. But not only that, not only that, the Schlegel translation also resurrected Shakespeare actually in England. So Shakespeare had kind of fallen out of favor in the 18th century because he was, because critics would see his language as too messy and it was not, it was not really based on rules. I mean, Voltaire, for example, said that Hamlet was the work of a drunken savage. So Schlegel and his so he also published quite a lot of lectures on on Shakespeare, which were then read by people like Coleridge, Wordsworth, Keats, the Shelleys. And these these lectures were incredibly important because what he did is he basically cast Shakespeare as a rom- the epitome of the romantic writer because he because his language was emotional, it was organic, like a living organism. And William Wordsworth at some stage said, you know, it was a German critic who taught us to think correctly about about Shakespeare. So his work on Shakespeare is very, very important in Germany, but also in England. Now,
0: to start to circle towards the ideas of romanticism, which are quite fugitive and quite complex and quite, you know, hard to pin down as they they themselves acknowledged and, and celebrated. But there is... You know there's philosophy coming in here and this is where i guess fichte if i'm pronouncing it correctly comes in who again another of these remarkable side stories he becomes practically the most famous philosopher in europe because of a case of mistaken identity <laughs> <laughs> yes
1: <laughs> so it's so fichte he's an extraordinary character too so fichte is this kind of very his famous, volatile temper he he teaches and he's dressed in his riding boots with spurs and kind of his whip in hand and he shouts and thunders and he stomps rather than walks and he what i really love is like he eats his um, snuff tobacco rather than <laughs> hailing it you know he's a he's a man on a mission and as a young philosopher he didn't have a lot of money so he's working as a as a tutor and he really hates it because he doesn't like the children and he does not like the parents so and he Admires Immanuel Kant's philosophy, so he decides that he's going to make a pilgrimage to visit the philosopher. And in order to show his admiration, he writes a short treatise on religion, which everybody then th- and he names it "Critique of All Revelation" or something like that. And but it's so he names it when he prints it very, you know, similarly to Kant's critiques, and kind of forgets to put his name on there so everybody assumes it's the long-awaited work from Immanuel Kant about religion and everybody writes about it and thinks it's absolutely brilliant and then finally Kant kind of writes a retraction writes to a very important um, literary magazine says like I did not write this but honor you know honor to honor is due this is a you know brilliant work and boom Fichte is like a superstar On the back of that, he gets the job at the University of Jena. And what he does is, and he basically puts the self at the center stage of his philosophy. So he says, instead of God-given truth or absolute truth, the only certainty there is is that the self experiences the world. And that doesn't sound very extraordinary to us because, you know, we are so used to look, to understand the world through the prism of ourself, we are a very selfish um, species. But at that time, it was an absolutely revolutionary idea because, for centuries, philosophers and thinkers had said that the universe was ruled by a divine hand, and mathematics and rational observations might have paved the the path to knowledge. So you know we can understand natural laws, but it didn't mean that we can shape them. So we. The humans remained this kind of cock, these cogs in this seemingly divine, divinely ordained kind of machine. And then Fichte comes and he says, the source of all reality is the self. And that was an explosive idea. So he basically said the self posits its own being, which means the self brings itself into existence. And not only that, with this powerful initial act, it also brings the external world into existence, at least in our mind. So it doesn't mean that the self creates the external world, but it creates our knowledge of that world. So this, this idea was very simple, but very, very radical, because it meant that the freedom, the power, was with the self. And with that, he imbued the self with the most thrilling of all power, which was freedom. And that is really the center of this book, this tension between the breathtaking possibilities of free will and the pitfalls of selfishness. And it's a balancing act, which, of course, we are still walking today, but it's the beginning of the modern self. So that's what I'm arguing. That are the big philosophical ideas behind this book. So this individual experience becomes the guiding light of this group. Now, I'm interested
0: a little in how that current of thinking kind of relates to some of the other stuff that was going on at the time, because, you know, obviously, as you say, it sort of takes a step on, or maybe someone say a step backward from Kant, you know, who's saying there's the self and there's the Diggensicht, the reality, the thinginess of the things that are out there, which isn't, it's imperfectly available to the self. You know, Fichte's obviously being almost more solipsistic, at least, apparently, but at the same time, a lot of your cast of characters, including particularly Goethe and Alexander Humboldt, were interested in the, the traditional enlightenment pursuit of knowledge about the outside world. They were doing science, they were interested in science, they were interested in finding ways that science could you know, inform our understanding of, of the self, among other things. I mean, how did these currents kind of jostle along together? Because I, I suppose Fichte seems quite a sort of strict idealist in a way, doesn't he?
1: So maybe uh, let me backpedal a little bit to Immanuel Kant. So basically Kant's philosophy was really about the possibilities of how do we gain knowledge of the world. And he what he essentially said is that we live in two worlds. One world is our subjective internal world, and the other world is the external world, which is the thing in itself. And he said we will never truly understand this world because we always see this external world through our senses and through the lens of our mind, the categories in our mind. So time, space, causality are all things how we see the outside world. And it's almost that our mind and our senses are like tinted sunglasses through which we see the world. Now, that could be very frustrating if you are a scientist, but what it also did is it put the emphasis on the self on your subjective view so although i will never understand the real true nature of the thing in itself i still have an understanding of the world and it's through the lens of my mind so the mind becomes more powerful so that's the first step to fichte's philosophy but it is also something that is very important for goethe for example so goethe is a scientist and a poet goethe is very much interested in color theory and he says well newton basically got it all wrong because he said, you know, there's like light that goes through a prism, glass prism, and then it's kind of split into all these colorful, into the different colors. And Goethe says, like, no, that's not true. You know, the eye is very important. The subjective view of the eye in the creation of color is very important. So, and for Alexander von Humboldt, the time he spent in Jena changed him. So he arrived in Jena as a young man. As a you know, very much an Enlightenment scientist who believes in rational observation and experiments and all these things and scientific data, and he leaves with a much greater emphasis on the self, and that makes Humboldt the extraordinary scientist he is. Because Humboldt, for the rest of his life, would always say, in order to truly understand nature, we have to use imagination. So imagination becomes, for all of them the most important faculty of the mind. And that doesn't mean that it becomes like this kind of, you know, fuzzy, emotional kind of thing. But they say imagination is as important as rational thought. So they don't, because a lot of people think that the romantics are these kind of like brooding, you know, love-lorn kind of woozy emotional types. But it's not true, you know, at all. In the beginning, it was not like that. What they said is that, and they didn't turn against rational thought, but what they said is like we should poeticize the sciences. So they wanted to transcend these boundaries. So Friedrich Schlegel, for example, says he wanted to make turn physics and mathematics into music. And he said, "I want to make Euclid singable." So they're trying to do something that is actually happening more and more in science today, which is kind of bringing together these kind of different disciplines.
0: Now, actually, you you saved sidebar, but you know, that sort of imaginative approach to the world, you can actually see it in the travel writing of this and the following century that actually the way people experience going somewhere else changes. How is that?
1: So in order to talk about that, I think we need to talk a tiny little bit about Friedrich Schelling, who was another philosopher there, who basically said, Fichte's focus on the self is not quite right. He says that the self and nature is actually one. So instead of dividing the the world into, into mind and matter, as philosophers have done for centuries, he, he says that's not true. Everything is one. So there's, in the living and in the non-living world, there's one underlying principle. So everything from frogs to stones, from insects to birds, from humans to rivers, everything is connected into one living organism, which is something that becomes very important for Alexander von Humboldt too. And he said that there's a bond between the self and nature. Self and nature is identical. And because it's identical, he says, so being in nature also means that it's always a self-discovery. So being in nature, like, you know, walking through a forest, scrambling up a hill means we learn something about ourselves. And this, is, this philosophy of oneness becomes the heartbeat of romanticism. It's very important for people like Coleridge, for example, But it also, and and this change, we can see in the travel accounts. So in the earlier 18th century, you have these travel accounts, which, you know, a learned traveler will sit in his carriage and he looks through the carriage window onto the landscape and he describes it really through the prism of his learning. It's, It's a bit, you know, you show off what you know. It's the same with architecture and art. But then you have the young romantics and suddenly walking in nature becomes something that is so important. So they begin to, you know, scramble up mountains, they stay the night in forests, they walk along kind of moonlit paths. So all of that becomes part of their discovery of themselves in nature. And you have poets like Wordsworth and Coleridge, for example, who become walking poets. So they actually compose their poetry by being outside. So this philosophy of oneness is really the centre of, of Romanticism. Now,
0: you mentioned Wordsworth and Coleridge again. There is that, that question of not necessarily who first minted the term, but as you put it, the I think the sort of ground zero of Romanticism in the German-speaking world was the publication of this magazine Athenaeum, in which we get Novalis's fragments, we get all sorts of stuff from the August Wilhelm Schlegel, and it happens at almost exactly the same time as literary ballads is published in Britain. Now, is that sort of like, you know, the light bulb being invented twice? I mean, because it's after that, isn't it, that, that Coleridge really makes his German expedition and starts to learn German and to translate and to read Schelling and, you know, read Fichte and so on. I mean, is it that, that essentially they rationalised afterwards but thought of the same thing at the same time?
1: I think very often when big intellectual changes happen, it's because something is, like, in the air. You know, it's not just... It happens very often in several places at the same time. Very rarely you have, like, this one person you can say, like, he's inventing this and this, or he's discovering that and that. I mean, look at the, the theory of evolution and Darwin and Wallace, for example. There's something in the air that's changing. And one thing is, of course, that there's a certain disenchantment with this newly rationalized world. So you have a world in the Enlightenment where... Enlightenment scientists and thinkers celebrate rational thought, observation, experiments. You have scientists who you know, peer down microscopes to understand the minutiae of life. They lift up their telescopes to understand our place in the universe. They dissect human bodies. They classify plants and animals to impose order on the world. Physicians inoculate against smallpox. The lightning rod is invented. Steam engines are invented. So you have this increasingly rationalized world, which creates a certain distance to nature. So nature becomes something that has to be observed from a so-called objective perspective. And that's something that more and more people turn against. So that happens in England and that happens in Germany. But what happens when in 1798, when the Jena set publishes that first issue of the Athenaeum, you have it first together in print, I would say. So that's a it's not the light bulb moment, but it's the moment when it's actually set down, printed, and and people read it and people start talking about it. So I think in that sense it's important. It's also the attempt to try to explain what romanticism is. That's also it's on the very pages there that the word romantic is first used by the Jina set. So I think it's it's very important. But it's also Romanticism, as they describe it, is very, it's very confusing. When I was trying to you know write about it it's like it's impossible to explain. So today, when we think about romanticism, we you know it evokes images of, say, a lonely figure in a moonlit forest or poems with love lawn lovers
0: yes cusper david friedrich has a lot to answer for
1: (laughs) exactly that's a slightly later generation or you know or people think of candlelit dinners when they think about the romantic but none of that was really what they wanted it was much more complex and unwieldy so what for them the most important thing is i think that they said romantic poetry is a living organism they said it's forever becoming never perfected so it's it's something that's alive and dynamic. It's It could be anything. So they say romantic poetry could be, of course, a poem, but it could be a novel. It could be a piece of music. It could be a scientific instrument. It could be a building. What they wanted is they wanted to transcend boundaries and they wanted to romanticize the whole world. That's what they said. And so just as two elements could create a new chemical compound, so they believe romantic poetry could create something distinctively knew. And just as they were breaking, you know, they were breaking the kind of straight jacket of social conventions. So they were breaking the rules of the literary establishments, which were rigid metric rules for poetry, for example. So they, it was all kind of up in the air. And I think they would have really loved that we to this day can't really come to a very pithy definition of r- romanticism is that's ex- precisely what they wanted. It was the kind of process Of thinking. It was not like the result of it. Now, you know, we're
0: talking a lot about, you know, essentially revolutionary ideas. But, you know, the major fact of European politics when they were just getting going was the French Revolution. And as you say, I think, you know, this was unignorable. It went all over Europe and actually probably looked rather different from Jena than it did from, say, London. Can you tell me how much that informed, and their reactions to that informed their thinking, were they as one in their enthusiasm for the French Revolution?
1: Except of Goethe, yes. I mean, the French Revolution was an event that was so pivotal that I think hardly anyone in Europe would have been unaffected by it. So when the when the French revolutionaries declared all men equal, it promised a new social order based on ideas and freedom. And, and I think with that philosophy, left is kind of ivory tower of rarefied thought and arrived in the minds of ordinary people. So the French Revolution proved that ideas, that words are stronger than weapons or the might of kings and queens. So so it was incredibly important for this younger generation. And Fichte's philosophy of the self, or as the Germans say, the Ich-philosophy, is really lit by the spark of the French Revolution. We cannot overestimate the impact of that to the Jena set. And so the French revolutionaries changed the political landscape of Europe, but the Jena set really incited a revolution of the mind. And it happens in parallel, basically. It's very, very important. And the, the person who is very important in that respect is, is Caroline, who's August Wilhelm Schliegel's wife, because she she experienced the French Revolution and she brought these ideas into the group. So she was... For me, she's really the center of this of this book and this story. She's an ex- absolutely fabulous woman. So she's she's called Caroline Michaelis Böhmer Schlegelschelling. So she carries the name of his father and her three husbands. But she refused to be restricted to the role of you know, women like society had intended for women at that time. So she was born in 1763. She was the daughter of a celebrated German. Uh, scholar. So she was raised on this diet of literature, philosophy and poetry. She was married when she was very young. She was widowed by the age of 24. And then she hung out with the German revolutionaries in Mainz, which was the first German, very short-lived German republic. She was then consequently imprisoned by the Prussians as a sympathizer of the French Revolution, and not only that, in prison, she discovers that she's pregnant after a one night stand with an 18 year old French soldier. So, I mean, quite something for, you know, what a girl! yeah, this is a time when just being alone with a man in a room is seen as scandalous behavior. Then after her imprisonment, she zigzags through Germany. She's an outcast. She's called a revolutionary whore. And then August Wilhelm Schlegel comes to her rescue because he had loved her for a long time. She was beautiful. She was witty. I mean, she's men just fell for her. So he marries her, gives her a new name and with that a new beginning and takes her in 1796 to Jena where she really becomes the heart and mind of the Jena set. So she creates the physical space where they all meet and party. But she's also, she she's, for example, the editor of the Athenaeum. She writes reviews under her husband's name and she translates with August Wilhelm Schlegel, the 16th Shakespeare play. So she's incredibly important. And she's super clever and super witty. And she is absolutely refusing to, you know, to be a demure housewife as everybody, you know, at that time would expect from women.
0: Yes, and there's a little, you mentioned that Friedrich, her brother-in-law, had a crush on her originally as well. That There's a sort of... I mean, that seems to have gone slightly on the down low. But then, as time proceeds, his wife, and I don't know whether that's the subtext to it, Dorothea... Actually, do do they marry? I can't remember whether they marry now.
1: They do marry, but not in my book. They marry later. They marry in the epilogue.
0: (laughs) Oh, sorry, they marry. But his later girlfriend, Dorothea, takes against her terribly. And there's a a real sort of, you know, in-family needle there, isn't there? Yeah, so...
1: As I said earlier, you know, this is a book about big ideas on the one hand, but also there's a lot of sex and rock and roll in there. <laughs> so much sex and rock and roll. <laughs> because otherwise it would be terribly boring. So you have Friedrich Schlegel, who is first in love with Karoline, and then because his brother is in love with her, you know, says, okay, you know, you can have her. He then falls in love with a married writer, Dorothea Feit, who's... Also, just by chance, the daughter of one of the most important German Enlightenment um, philosophers, Moses Mendelssohn. She then gets divorced. They then move together with Karolina and August Wilhelm into their house in Jena, which really is, you know, it is a bit like a commune. Then he writes his erotic novel. And then you have Karolina, who has, you know, her child after this one-night stand, who then marries August Wilhelm, who then... August Wilhelm and Caroline have arranged this kind of open marriage, so they both have affairs. So she then has an affair with Friedrich Schelling, who's the this this younger philosopher, who's twelve years younger than her, who's a friend of everybody. Um, Then. August Wilhelm says, like, you know, laughs about the affair and says, you know, he doesn't really mind because he has his affairs. And he says, and anyway, you know, Carolina is not done yet. You know, in time, she will move on to younger men. There's, you know, the next one is still wearing his little sailor suit. (laughs) It is such a confusing mess. Who is sleeping with whom?
0: August Wilhelm is a very low temperature character, wasn't he? Yeah, he was
1: very calm. He was very calm. (laughs) Yeah. And then in the end, they all fall out which is maybe unsurprising if you have a group of rebellious young men and women who have declared the self as the supreme ruler of the world that you end up with inflated egos and with self-absorption. So it all goes horribly wrong then because Friedrich, Friedrich Schlegel is basically pissed off that Caroline has an affair with Schelling, probably because he would have liked to have one. And then the moment Friedrich turns against Caroline his lover Dorothea, who's kind of a little bit jealous of Caroline because she was the first big love of her lover, she then just becomes so brutally awful and writes these terrible letters to friends in Berlin. I mean, it's just you know, it's a complete and utter mess at the end. <sighs> Reading those letters, I can tell you, that was so much fun. It was like reading Hello! magazine in the 18th century. So much gossip. <laughs> because they're all writers and poets. They write so beautifully, even in their nastiness. It's kind of absolutely fabulous.
0: It's extraordinary. It's sort of high minds and low passions all at the same time, isn't it?
1: Yes, definitely, definitely. And there's this this sort of slightly
0: at the margins, who we haven't discussed much, is the poet Novalis, whose You know, this sort of rather mournful character who actually literally works down a salt mine.
1: Yes. So Novalis is a strange character. Novalis actually becomes... I mean, he's, he's a superstar in Germany, so some of the English readers might know him from Penelope Fitzgerald's beautiful novel, The Blue Flower, where he's the main protagonist. So he was... He dies very young and, like, frozen in time and youth, he becomes... In Germany, he becomes the epitome of the young romantic. So he is... He's the son of a ancient Saxon aristocratic family. Eleven children. They're, you know, cash poor. So he has to work. Although he comes from this kind of very privileged background, he has to work and he works in the in the salt mines. And everybody agrees, all the friends agree that there's something quite magical about him. So he is he's tall, he's handsome, he has this kind of long hair. They all say his eyes have this kind of ethereal fire. Men and women for him he falls for a twelve year old which makes for slightly uncomfortable reading these days but it is a platonic love um he has i mean in his diaries he writes very detailed about his sexual urges which and he custides himself for it so he does not like it and you know it's like loot today more lootness today or like, lootness in the morning led to an explosion <laughs> in the afternoon um but but he keeps that to his, to his diary so then, then his Sophie von Kuhn, the girl he loves, dies when she's 15 after three very, very kind of gruesome operations. And he then wants to follow her. He wants to die, to be reunited with her. But he doesn't want to put like a pistol to his head. He, he gives Fichte's Ich-Philosophy a very special twist. And he says, I can do this with willpower, because only then it's true love.
0: He's going to will himself to death.
1: <laughs> yeah, and he says, so if, if the self can conjure up the external world, if the self, you know, if our mind is able to think and, and tell an arm to lift its, you know, to lift, then surely our mind is also able to regrow an amputated arm or to kill myself. So, and needless to say, he kind of fails to do that. But he, he turns his grief into some of the most exquisite poetry of that time so his hymns to the night is a cycle of six poems in which he celebrates darkness and death in a way that has not been done before so darkness was always something scary before but he and it's a combination of sophie's death but also his experience in the minds because he goes into the darkness into the bowel of the of the earth but that becomes a a metaphor for going inside you. So to go into darkness is to transcend to a kind of, you know, another being, really. So he's he's a fabulous character, and he and but what he does really is he because he's a scientist and a poet. He's really fighting against this kind of disenchantment of the world and wants to poeticize the sciences. And he says that the world has become this this gigantic mill wheel that just grinds itself to dust and what he does is what he calls it his magic idealism so it's taking science so he's never leaving leaving the sciences but he wants to turn them into something different and he you know he's trying to transcend the you know the boundaries of body and mind he what he says like i want to touch my own mind and he's like in the labs trying to kind of come up with some elixir that he can he can do that with so but then he dies when he's 28 and the friends publish his work posthumously, and they they'd really turn him into a myth so in germany he is that kind of epitome of the young romantic yeah
0: can I ask just before, we, we nearly run out of time, but I'm intrigued to hear you say, as as you do, when you were able to, to sort of straddle both these literary cultures, that, you know, all these characters, they're superstars in Germany, but they're not so well known here. Is that same sort of in curiosity the other way? I mean, if, if we were to be speaking on a German podcast about, say, Wordsworth and Coleridge, would there be the same sort of, oh, yes, vaguely heard of them? Or do you think English literary culture is quite insular in that way?
1: I actually don't know because I've lived in England for 30 years so what I do know is that for example when I was doing the book about Alexander von Humboldt and there was a whole section about his influence on on Henry David Thoreau was that I mean some Germans know him but he's not as big as he is in the English speaking world so maybe he like whole and words are not that famous in Germany but I I honestly I can't I can't answer that question
0: it's just interesting. there's so much Traffic, you know, in the sense—I mean, through Coleridge above all—but you know, there is a sense that in this century, people were really alive to cross European intellectual currents. Has that sort of stopped?
1: Well, I don't know if it has stopped, but you know, certainly at the beginning of the 20th century, no one was that keen anymore on German literature and philosophy. So, you know, the heydays of German thinking—I mean, World War One, oh, yes, not great—but then with Hitler, basically, that that ended. So, it felt quite. Strange for me to kind of go back to, at, because I'm, you know, I'm I'm German, but I left Germany a long, long time ago because I have a big problem with our history, and it was it was strange writing a book that was, kind of celebrating German culture, but it's kind of you know it was so much earlier. But what I find fascinating is how their ideas actually travel. So you have, at that time, still people a lot of people who learn German. So for example, Coleridge leaves. England in 1798 to travel to Germany for two reasons one is he wants to meet his heroes in Jena and he wants to learn German and you know very annoyingly for a historian he runs out of money so he never makes it (laughs) to to Jena (laughs) damn him but he learns German and he after 10 months he leaves he returns to England with a trunk full of philosophical books and the time in Germany really changed him. So he, he arrived as an English poet, but he leaves with a with the mind of a philosopher. And after that, he reads all the stuff that's coming out of Jena, so Fichte's philosophy. And but he's in particular influenced by Schelling's work, this kind of philosophy of oneness, the unity between us and nature. And he's so obsessed by it that he translates pages after pages after pages of Schelling's work and passes it on as his own work. So when Coleridge publishes his literary um, autobiography... he's a bit
0: naughty like that.
1: His friend De Quincey accuses him of, like, bare-faced plagiarism and says, like, the whole essay is a verbatim translation of Schelling, which was a little bit exaggerated. This is the
0: biographia? Yeah,
1: exactly, the biographia literaria. And yeah. he does the same with August Wilhelm Schlegel's lectures on, on Shakespeare. So Coleridge lectures on Shakespeare, and he just you know, uses in large parts Schlegel's lectures and just translates them and pretends it's his work. So, so you have that. And then you have the American transcendentalists who also are very influenced and who read most of the work also in German. So, you know, one of the things that's not happening now anymore, is like not that many people speak German anymore. But the ripple effect was huge that was coming out of, coming out of Lena.
0: Fantastic. Well, English Romanticism, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Andrea Hawth, thank you very much indeed for your time.